Chapter 2 Whereas the Seigneury of Sault St. Louis is the property of the Iroquois Nation. Dissidents, Property, and Power, 1790-1815 Hitherto it has been usual in all disputes among the Indians of the said village, Gahnawage, that the chiefs in council have decided and determined the same agreeable to those laws and usages which have been handed down to them from their ancestors, and this right having been constantly permitted through the indulgence of the British government, it became at last generally understood by their nation that the chiefs had the power of determining and that the nation was bound to submit to the decision in all such cases. Gahnawage Chiefs, 1799 during the first centuries of contact, there were many moments when the relationships between settlers and indigenous people were relatively balanced and mutually beneficial. The laws and the land begins at such a moment, with prosperous Gatnawagehronu, who ruled themselves according to their own laws, spoke their own language, and took part in formal and informal colonial economies as they saw fit. The colonial powers, first France and then Britain, had to adjust their practices to accommodate indigenous cultural, economic, and political practices. Of course, not everything was fine. Indigenous societies had dealt with their own problems since time immemorial, and the arrival of European microbes, ideas, and products brought new death, turmoil, and destruction. Nevertheless, Indigenous peoples saw benefits in the European presence and could still impose their narratives and laws in ways that would become unimaginable in the 19th century. Until the late 18th century, Gahnawage chiefs rarely felt the need to defend their authority. The nation governed itself according to its own laws, and colonial authorities were unable to interfere a great deal in its internal affairs. But the relatively functional, symmetrical relationship was beginning to unravel. In 1799, the chiefs petitioned Governor General Robert Prescott in defense of their rights and authority. Their petition is quoted in the epigraph. Expressing shock and consternation that the colonial leaders did not seem to understand their relationship. This chapter explores how an increasingly asymmetrical power dynamic developed between Gahnawage and British authorities through legal disputes that occurred decades before Confederation and the passage of the Indian Act. It looks at how colonial law, specifically land law, made inroads into Gahnawage in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Gahnawage Hironu experienced tremendous change during the century between 1716, when they moved to their present location, and the years following the War of 1812. At the beginning of this period, Rudinashuni nations were important actors throughout the region, but they had lost much of their economic and military power by the 1820s. Britain had become the dominant power, and throughout the 19th century, many Gahnawage Hronu became involved in the fur trade in the Northwest and in other colonial projects far away from their homelands. Montreal, no more than a village in 1716, had grown into a city on the brink of an explosive industrialization 
and settlers were transforming its environ into villages and farms. This chapter details how Gahnawagehronu adapted their laws and practices to these changes, and the conflicts and debates that resulted. It describes the beginnings of various kinds of colonial intrusions that made it increasingly difficult for Gahnawage leaders to enforce their authority. At times, dissident community members challenged Gahnawage leaders and laws with support from settler outsiders. Successive colonial governments and their courts became more willing and able to take advantage of these cleavages to undermine Gahnawage sovereignty. Gahnawage leaders recognized such threats for what they were and responded in innovative ways but were unable to win decisive victories due to growing colonial power imbalances. This chapter looks at the various legal challenges to the authority of the chiefs in council, which contextualizes the creation of the Code of 1801 as the chiefs' response meant to limit the intrusion of colonial legal regimes into Gahnawage. An important sign of growing conflict in the colonial record involved Gahnawage Hironu, who wished to circumvent Gahnawage chiefs and Gahnawage laws. Already in 1771, a delegation of 22 Gahnawage diplomats had approached the Indian Department to express concern about two Gahnawage families who intended to allow French families to settle on Gahnawage lands. Legal historians Philip Girard, Jim Phillips, and R. Blake Brown refer to them as a small group of inhabitants of Gahnawage who were clearly trying to evade seeking the approval of the Gahnawage Council of Chiefs, which would be required before any land could be alienated to outsiders, pushing community leaders to seek backup from British colonial officials. The first court records of such clashes date from the 1790s, when dissident Gahnawage Hronu tried to bypass the authority of the chiefs by taking their disputes to court, to have their matters resolved according to colonial law, rather than Gahnawage law. Conflict and Law in Gahnawage, 1790-1815 Disputes in Gahnawage were handled internally according to Gahnawage law and left no written records. In practice, colonial authorities recognized that indigenous people were governed by their own laws. Even though French law did not technically differentiate between indigenous and non-indigenous people, French authorities almost never put indigenous people on trial for crimes committed against non-indigenous people. Instead, the accused were usually transferred to their home communities for proceedings according to indigenous legal protocols. During the first decades of British rule, a few indigenous people begin to appear in Montreal legal records, but only in cases where an individual had broken colonial laws outside indigenous-controlled territory. Conflicts within indigenous nations continued to be resolved by the nations themselves. A case from March 1799 signaled a shift, however, when the Court of King's Bench sentenced Gyatarajé, a Gahnawage man, to death for the murder of Gahedjaks, a Gahnawage woman. Gahnawage chiefs petitioned to have Gyatarajé pardoned, given that he had never expected to be judged by colonial law. Chapter Epigraph 
Referring to themselves as your memorialists, they reminded Governor General Robert Prescott that they had always mediated all disputes in the village according to laws and usages which have been handed down to them from their ancestors. They did not suggest that Gyatarajé was innocent, but only that their people understood themselves to be governed by their own laws and that everyone, including the British government, had recognized this practice. Indeed, if colonial laws were to be applied to their people, they should be the first to know. Had your memorialists been taught to believe that they as chiefs exercised an improper or ill-founded jurisdiction over the disputes arising between individuals of their nation, had they been taught to consider the general law of the land as the rule of their conduct, it would have been their duty to declare and make this known to their nation that they might have no excuses for their delinquency. Clearly, the chiefs were not referring to themselves as delinquent. They were emphasizing their consternation, not only that the colonial government had expanded its jurisdiction into Gahnawage, but also that they had not been informed. They noted that the case in question awakens them from their dream of security under their own usages. Their petition expressed great surprise that colonial officials should attempt to impose their laws on Gahnawage and indicated that the chiefs were disturbed about this change. This event in 1799, then, seems to have been a moment of clarity for Gahnawage leaders. When they recognized that an important shift was underway that would place colonial law over their own, this criminal case was a strong indicator that colonial officials did not intend to respect indigenous jurisdiction and subsequent land disputes would bear this out. Araquande and Sagosinagete. In all the years of colonial rule before 1796, there is only one known case in which an indigenous person appealed to the courts to resolve an internal problem. But between 1796 and 1820, there are 30 such cases, almost all of them involving Gahnawage. This explosion in cases is particularly noteworthy because it does not correspond to a general increase in court activity for the period. Nearly half of the cases, 14, involved one married Gahnawage couple, Araquande, Thomas, and Sagosinagete, Agat. The colonial archive gives almost no background information on Sagosinagete. More is known about Araquande. He was an orphan from another indigenous nation, adopted by a Gahnawage family. He inherited some wealth from his parents and became an influential merchant who ran a Gahnawage inn that was said to illegally sell liquor. He was also a fur trader, landholder, speculator, and moneylender, and he possessed a lucrative ferry license for moving goods and people across the St. Lawrence River. An Irish writer named Isaac Weld met Araquande in the mid-1790s near Lake Champlain when Araquande was on his way to trade furs in Albany. According to Weld, Thomas appeared to be 45 years of age. He was nearly six feet high and very bulky in proportion. This is a sort of make uncommon among the Indians, who are generally slender. He was dressed like a white man, in boots, his hair untied but cut short. 
the people who attended him were all in the Indian habit. Not one of his followers could speak a word of English or French. Thomas, however, could himself speak both languages. English, he spoke with some little hesitation, and not correctly, but French seemed as familiar to him as his native tongue. His principal attention seemed to be directed towards trade, which he had pursued with great success. So much so, indeed, that, as we afterwards heard, he could get credit in any store in Montreal for 500 pounds. He had along with him at Chimney Point 30 horses and a quantity of furs in the canoe, which he was taking for sale to Albany. His people, he told us, had but a very few wants. He took care to have these always supplied. In return, they brought him furs, taken in hunting. They attended his horses and voluntarily accompanied him when he went on a trading expedition. His profits, therefore, must be immense. Weld added that Araquande had invited him to Gahnawage, where he promised to make him and his men very happy and to introduce them to Gahnawage women who might become their wives. Weld promised to visit. He had the impression that Araquande was very wealthy, and it is also worth emphasizing that Araquande dressed like a white man, unlike his companions. Though I am skeptical about Weld's claim that none of Araquande's associates spoke English or French, the more important point is that Araquande was adept at conducting business in both colonial languages, whereas his associates were probably less comfortable doing so. Finally, in light of the problems that Gahnawage was just beginning to experience with white men who married into the community, Araquande's claim that he would provide Weld and his men with wives is important and telling. I return to this below. Weld was quite taken by Araquande's swagger, but he was later told that Araquande was not a man respected among the Indians in general who think much more of a chief that is a good warrior and hunter and that retains the habits of his nation than of one that becomes a traitor and assimilates his manners to those of the whites. Araquande's aggressive commercial activities and assimilationist tendencies had earned him little respect in the community, it seems. And this was not simply a matter of jealousy among his neighbors, Many Ganawage Hironu saw him as putting his own interests above those of the nation. In the 1790s, when he began to take his neighbors to court, he broke with the traditions and laws of his people. In 1791 and 1792, Ara successfully sued white people who owed him money in the colonial courts. But it was in 1796 that he became the first of his nation to take a fellow Gahnawage Hronu to a British court. When Gahnawage chief Onasadega removed a fence that Araquande had erected around a piece of land, Araquande sued. The chiefs, supporting Onasadega, rightly considered such a lawsuit an affront to their authority. Eight of them met with the attorney general to protest this action. They argued that a colonial court was no place for a conflict between indigenous people. According to Indian Department official Joseph Chu, the chief stated, If the Indians were indebted to a white man and he sued them, they would appear in court and do what they could to discharge the debt. 
but that one Indian should serve a writ on another and make him appear in a court of law is a new and unprecedented matter, and they hoped his lordship would take the same into consideration and have stop put to such proceedings. A few weeks later, two chiefs again met with Chu. After the meeting, he wrote, I thought I knew the rules and customs of Indians pretty well, but one of these chiefs had so much to say beginning with the Mohawks going through the customs of the Six and many of the Western nations, all tending to prove that Indians had no right to bring each other into a court of law, that I found it in vain for me to dispute with them. Attorney General John Sewell, however, believed that any person who lived under British protection should have the right to appeal to its courts. Thus, despite the protests of the chiefs, the case went forward in the Court of King's Bench. Both parties agreed that Gahnawage law required a person to occupy a parcel of land for more than one year in order to be put in possession of it. In other words, everyone agreed that a legitimate claim to land required occupancy and, presumably, use. In this case, British judges recognized Gahnawage law and attempted to enforce it without knowing much about it. The court heard witnesses, Artaquande claimed to have fulfilled the Gahnawage requirement for ownership, but Onosadega and his three witnesses argued that according to Gahnawage law, it was the chiefs who decided such matters. The court found for the defendant, but it is not clear why. Gerard, Phillips, and Brown find this case interesting, not only because the court upheld and enforced Gahnawage law, but also because both Artaquande and Onosadega were represented by prominent Montreal lawyers. This reveals how much was at stake and how familiar the contemporary Montreal legal community would have been with the case. The colonial legal establishment was clearly taking an interest in Gahnawage law, but this interest can be understood as a prelude to a more aggressive expansion of colonial law. In 1798, Araquande again sued a Hironu, Jacob Joseph Hill, in a Montreal court. He claimed that Hill had threatened him with death when he demanded repayment of a debt. Hill's affidavit states that Hill came to Artaquande's house carrying a rifle in one hand and a pistol in the other, tried to force him outside, insulted him by calling him a coward and a woman, threatened to kill him, and finally shot at one of his windows. Documents showing the outcome of the case are missing from the archived court files. Araquande brought suit again in the Montreal Court of King's Bench in 1799 after he hired laborers to cut trees for commercial sale of the timber, and the chiefs intervened to stop him. He argued that they were depriving him of his own wood and that a custom or usage exists and for time immemorial hath existed, that each and every Gahnawage Indian had the right to cut down, and take any quantity of wood which he may choose to take. In other words, his commercial woodcutting on Gahnawage territory, for which he employed two lumberjacks, was in line with Gahnawage law. He believed the chiefs had violated his ancient rights when they prevented him, with force and arms, from cutting and from taking away wood. 
One witness for the defense, Claude Deranceau, testified that for the previous 20 or 22 years, only the chiefs had the authority to sell wood from the seigneury, but that during the last four or five years, certain Gahnawage Hironu had been taking and selling as much as they wanted. Araquande had approached the chiefs during the previous fall and winter to ask about taking wood, but they told him he was not to sell it, not even an axe handle. The case ended with Araquande withdrawing his complaint for unknown reasons, but Araquande continued to advance his agenda despite community opposition. Although these initial attempts to use the courts to settle land disputes were not successful, Araquande and Sagosinagete sued several other Gahnawage Hironu during the following decade. They brought a case against a chief for ejecting Sagosinagete from the church and threatening to banish her from the community. The court required the chief to enter into a bond to keep the peace. Araquande received a similar judgment after he complained that in 1799, two Gahnawage had threatened to kill him. In an 1806 case, he accused a man of threatening him, and a bailiff was sent to Gahnawage to arrest the suspect. The bailiff was met by a group of at least 50 Gahnawage Hironu armed with clubs and sticks, who said they had not any business with the law of Montreal. Gerard, Phillips, and Brown argue that Araquande and Sagosinagete's success was greater in cases that involved their personal safety and mobility than in cases involving land and wood. The same year, 1806, the chiefs followed through on their threat to expel Araquande because he would not, in the words of his court declaration, renounce the laws of this country nor abandon his trade and commerce. Gahnawage Hironu were asking him to renounce British law and to stop breaking Gahnawage law. He refused. Aided by a large number of armed Gahnawage Hironu, the chiefs stormed Araquande and Sagosinagete's house and, according to Araquande's declaration, seized upon him with violence, carried him from his said house, and imprisoned him during the space of six hours that they then conducted him by force out of the said village, like a criminal, to the distance of about two leagues from the said village, to the first settlements of the parish of La Prairie, when they set him at liberty with an injunction not to return to the said village on pain of his life. He returned to his house that very night, but the following day he was again apprehended on a road east of the village. His captors brought him to the center of the village, where they gathered a large crowd and, under the pretense that he would not renounce the laws of this country, colonial Lower Canada, nor give up his trade and commerce, seized upon him anew. Seven men were then tasked with removing him. This time, they escorted him five or six leagues to the upper reaches of the Turtle River, Rivière de la Tortue probably near today's village of St. Mathieu. There, in an area of woods and swamps, they set him free on condition that he never return. Araquande, Sagosinagete, and their children then moved to Montreal for their own safety while they sought the protection of the courts, and two of his sons-in-law attempted to look after his Gahnawage business interests for him. 
The Court of King's Bench at Montreal, however, decided in Araquande's favor, and the chiefs were required to allow him to return home and pay him 30 pounds in damages. Gerard, Phillips, and Brown see this decision as depriving the government of Gahnawage the authority to enforce its decisions regarding expulsions of inhabitants believed to be a fundamental threat to the community's well-being. And thus, as a serious blow to the integrity of customary law and authority, indeed to the community itself. The courts of Lower Canada were marked by considerable inconsistency at the time, and little is known about the kind of justice that Indigenous people could expect to find there. Legal historian Jean-Philippe Garneau shows that during the latter decades of the 18th century, judges and lawyers who had little or no formal legal training struggled to navigate the provisions of the Quebec Act. The new justice system, which came into effect with this act in 1775, was a hybrid of the British common law tradition and the civil law tradition of France, and several decades elapsed before it worked smoothly. Between 1780 and 1835, Indigenous people represented only about 0.5% of defendants in quarter sessions complaints in the district of Montreal, and even fewer appeared as plaintiffs. Indeed, legal historian Donald Fison uses the example of Araquande and Sagosinaguete to illustrate the rarity of Indigenous plaintiffs during this period. Merchants, on the other hand, were always overrepresented in the courts compared to their demographic weight in the population at large. All of this suggests that Araquande's actions and values were in line with those of merchants, but not with those of other Indigenous people. It is worth considering how Araquande fits into the overall pattern of litigation in Quebec at the time. Historian Evelyn Kolisch's quantitative analysis of civil court records for this time period shows that the British population was overrepresented in litigation compared to the French-Canadian population. She suggests that this could arise from the fact that most litigants were urban and that Anglophone populations tended to be urban. She hypothesizes that the British population relished litigation more than the Canadians, or that they relied more on the courts and less on the informal networks of family and local communities. Although Kolish does not present direct evidence to corroborate this claim, it seems reasonable that cultural and political factors explain the difference. Sensitaires, mostly Francophone farmers, almost never entered the court system as plaintiffs. According to Kolish, the economic and social realities of life would have made litigation unlikely, if not impossible, for most sensitaires, hence a relatively low level of litigation on seigneurial rights. No doubt the fact that the majority of landowners were rural smallholders, running owner-occupied farms, also reduced litigation, since the rural agricultural population would appear to have resorted much more systematically to local arbitration especially in matters such as boundaries, fencing, rights of way, and so on. This was a tendency undoubtedly reinforced by the urban bias of the court structures. Kolish argues that the courts were 
distinctly marginal in their impact on the lives of most of Lower Canada's rural agricultural population. Like French Canadians, Gahnawage Hronu avoided the colonial courts until the time of Araquande, at least in part for cultural and political reasons. Of course, geographical distance also played a role. Since people who lived at the greatest distances from Montreal and Quebec City were least likely to go to court, and since Gahnawage was closer to a major urban center than most indigenous communities, it is not surprising that it was among the first indigenous communities to become involved in civil litigation. Araquande's litigiousness was unusual for Gahnawage, but it was also unusual for rural Lower Canada in general. The position of Gahnawage as a ferry hub across from Lachine, and with easy access to Montreal, facilitated Araquande's urban connections despite the rural locale of Gahnawage itself. Since Araquande had regular contact with Anglophone merchants in the Montreal region, he may also have shared their assumptions about the superiority of British civilization and law, and the inferiority of Indigenous ways. He certainly recognized a useful legal mechanism that could advance his interests and behaved much like other merchants he knew. It is also likely that he encountered rhetoric that linked seigneurial forms of land tenure to backwardness and tyranny and freehold forms of land tenure to British liberties. It would not be hard for him to see himself as the oppressed victim of an outdated and unfair system of land tenure, whether Gagnon-Quehaga or French or both. Later in the century, British merchants, along with their government patrons, would use legislation to systematically attack the seigneurial system. Araquande challenged Gahnawage land laws in Montreal courts. Although his contemporaries saw him as a wealthy man, his controversial land and timber grabs could also have been grounded not in a sense of immunity, but in desperation, perhaps because his usual sources of income were drying up. This interpretation would fit with Alan Greer's portrayal of a country merchant in the latter half of the 18th century as perennially indebted and searching for new sources of revenue, except in times of war. However, Araquande's practices challenge Greer's characterization of rural merchants as parasitic intermediaries between productive systems over which they exercised little control. In Greer's account, rural merchants bought low and sold high, but made no attempt to transform the feudal order into a capitalist one. It is not known whether Araquande's ambitions included the creation of a capitalist society in Gahnawage, but his actions were clearly aimed at upsetting the existing order in favor of one that favored people like him. Gahnawage Hronu long held a reputation as innovative, entrepreneurial traders, but Araquande stepped out of that tradition by defying the laws of his own community and appealing to colonial law. In the early 19th century, Gahnawage chiefs were facing an increasing number of internal challenges from people like Araquande, and they would have to find a way to assert their authority and the primacy of their laws on their territory. There is evidence that Araquande sometimes gained the support of a few chiefs, but mostly he seems to have been at odds with his community. 
Several years after a British court order allowed him to return to Gahnawage, a traveler named John M. Duncan, who had read Isaac Weld's account, saw Artaquande and wrote, He was formerly a traitor and in good circumstances, but is now in poverty and bloated with dissipation. Two of his sons were educated at the seminary in Montreal. Here is evidence that despite his success in court, Artaquande had not been able to maintain his wealth and status in Gahnawage. We do not know what led to his poverty, but his downfall might have served as an important cautionary tale for anyone who wished to defy Gahnawage law. Nevertheless, it also reveals new vulnerabilities and dangers for Gahnawage sovereignty. Claude de Lorimier Another influential and controversial Gahnawage man during this period was Claude de Lorimier, Guillaume Chevalier de Lorimier, a French-Canadian militia officer and merchant who served for many years as an Indian agent for the Indian Department. De Lorimier helped the British recruit indigenous soldiers, took part in a number of military operations, and later led Gunyankehaga warriors into battle during the War of 1812. He settled in Gahnawage in 1783 when he married a Gahnawage woman whose name is recorded as Marie-Louise Schuler. After she died in 1790, he married a French-Canadian woman who died in 1800. He then married Skowanetti Anne Gregory, or McGregor, who was probably Gonyankehaga. His three wives bore 12 children in total. Initially, Delorimier developed a network of allies in Gahnawage and cultivated the trust of its leaders. He was adopted into the nation in 1790 and given the name Deohadegun. After swearing never to sell lands to non-Gahnawage Hronu, he was given land rights under Gahnawage law. It is understandable why Gahnawage leaders would perceive Delorimier as valuable, given his significant military experience and connections in the colonial government. His inclusion in the community is in line with Rodinashoni legal principles promoting the naturalization of outsiders to strengthen the nation. Not long afterward, however, Delorimier showed himself unworthy of trust, and Gahnawage public opinion turned against him. Already in 1794, a large group of Gahnawage Hironu submitted a list of complaints against Delorimier that he made false promises, was sexually promiscuous, engaged in liquor trafficking, and involved in corrupt political and economic practices. The most serious accusations were that he accumulated land, cattle, and wood to the detriment of the poor and of the nation, and that he enriched himself with funds intended for the community. Gahnawage Hironu repeatedly raised similar complaints during the following two decades and later against his children. By 1801, Delorimier had obtained 53 lots in Gahnawage, totaling 107 acres, and many in the community agreed, on the basis of Gahnawage law, that he had no right to own so much. There were also complaints that his cattle damaged others' crops, which suggests that he did not maintain his fences or that he simply allowed his animals to roam. In 1809, five chiefs described him as 
one of those whites who sometimes want to be Indians for the advantages and sometimes white men in order to humiliate and crush us. By the 1810s, Delorimier had few allies left among the chiefs or in the community as a whole. But the chiefs were in a difficult position since they relied on him as official interpreter and Indian agent, positions that were determined by the Indian department. They finally managed to have him dismissed as agent in 1821, but he was well-connected at a number of levels of government, and he used these relationships to keep his rights to live and own land in Gahnawage. In 1821, the chiefs disavowed and annulled all land grants to Delorimier and ruled that his land would revert to the nation upon his death. However, after he died in 1825, his children managed to sell and repurchase his land and buildings, and they fought for years to maintain their rights in Gahnawage. Araquande and Delorimier were both motivated by the desire to accumulate land and property in ways that were out of step with Gahnawage legal norms, but the two men do not appear to have been allies. In fact, they clashed in one of the major legal disputes of the time. In 1803, Araquande took Delorimier to court, claiming that the latter had cut wood in his sugar bush. According to Gahnawage law, living trees could be felled by any Gahnawage Hirono for their own use, but this did not extend to maples that were actively tapped. Delorimier defended himself by saying that the sugar bush did not belong to Artaquande and, in fact, was owned by all. The two squared off, not only in a Montreal court, but also in the court of Gahnawage public opinion. Araquande had the favor of a few people in Gahnawage, among whom were five minor chiefs, but Delorimier managed to sway the majority, including most of the chiefs, to support his position. Each man constructed his arguments to appeal to both British colonial and Gahnawage legal norms, but since Araquande could not prove that Delorimier actually had logged in the sugar bush, the court ruled in favor of Delorimier. In making this decision, it sidestepped the question of Gahnawage law and focused on the absence of evidence. Both men represented a threat to the community. Araquande was a Gahnawage Hronu who undermined chiefly authority by taking internal matters to a colonial court, where he attempted to reframe Gahnawage law to his own benefit. He was not always successful. But Gahnawage leaders were very concerned about this challenge to their authority and the potential for others to follow his lead. Delorimier was a white man who gained Gahnawage rights by developing a relationship of trust with Gahnawage leaders and marrying a Gahnawage woman. He then used his new status to enrich himself in a way that Gahnawage Hronu saw as illegal and immoral. When the community demanded that Delorimier and his family relocate, he and his children fought for many decades to keep their rights and accumulated wealth. Thus, in the 1790s, Gahnawage leaders began to encounter relatively powerful, insubordinate members of their nation who were willing to enrich themselves at the expense of the community. The power and danger represented by these men came not just from the men themselves, but from the colonial courts that were increasingly willing to claim legal jurisdiction over indigenous lands and people. 
Araquande and Delorimier cut and sold wood in unneighborly ways and appropriated large swaths of land for themselves, both of which were illegal actions under Gahnawage law. At a time when people grew most of their own food and burned wood to heat their homes, the threat posed by their behavior was very real. On a cultural level, Araquande and Delorimier can be seen as acting normally when compared with white men across colonial North America, but as abnormally in the context of Gahnawage. It was precisely because they were importing colonial norms into Gahnawage that they were such a danger. The 1801 Code Gahnawage chiefs responded to the threats posed by these men in several ways. First, they fought back in court when they had to, and sometimes they won. They also appealed directly to colonial authorities, as they did in 1799, when eight chiefs met with the Attorney General to explain why their internal conflicts should not be tried in a court of law. When cases did go forward, they found themselves attempting to explain Gahnawage laws in the face of an opposing Gahnawage Hronu, who interpreted those same laws in another way. Araquande, for example, argued in court that Gahnawage law allowed him to cut as much wood as he wanted on communal land and to sell it. The chiefs vehemently rejected his interpretation. In addition, Delorimier told the court that because he had a right to own land in Gahnawage, he could acquire as much as he wished. Again, the chiefs asserted an opposing view. In effect, this situation made non-Indigenous colonial judges the arbiters of Gahnawage law, which was unwritten at the time, even though they had no expertise in the subject. Gahnawage law was part of the larger Rodinashuni legal tradition that was rooted in centuries of thought and practice. And it was absurd to have its finer points mediated by people who were ignorant of it, as they themselves admitted. Gahnawage chiefs certainly believed that engaging in these conflicts in such a way was completely inappropriate, unprecedented, and harmful to their community and nation. In 1801, the chiefs drafted the 1801 Code, which put Gahnawage laws onto paper for the first time. The translated archival document, probably translated from Gonyongkeha into French and then into English, but the Gonyongkeha document has not been preserved, refers to these laws as regulations and conditions granted and agreed upon by the chiefs of the Iroquois of Sault St. Louis, assembled and convened for this purpose in the council chamber of the village of Sault St. Louis. The document marks an early and ambitious attempt to codify Gahnawage law. The chiefs approved it before witnesses and notaries on February 26, 1801 signing and thus ratifying each of its 21 articles, except Article 8. More on that below. Historians Denis Delage and Etienne Gilbert argue that the chiefs wrote down their laws to protect their collectivity from those who wanted to twist and use their traditions for personal gain. Because this document is so important, I have given a translation of the entire original here. Translation of the 1801 Code Rules and conditions granted and agreed upon by the chiefs of the Iroquois of Sault St. Louis 
assembled and called together for that purpose. In the council room at the village of Sault St. Louis, this 26th day of February, 1801. Article 1. Whereas the seigneury of Sault St. Louis is the property of the Iroquois nation of the said village, and that it is in common with any member composing the said nation, and that they have all equal shares therein, without, however, it being in the power of any individual to subdivide, sell, or alienate any part of it in any manner. It is expressly agreed that the seigneury and the mills, which can or may hereafter belong to it, as well as the revenues which may arise therefrom, shall be governed and administered by the chiefs of the village and their councillors, or by all other persons who shall be then given power by notorial act and delivered in full council called together for that purpose. Accepted. Article 2. It shall be lawful for the chiefs of the village and council to appoint one or more persons to receive, to collect, and even to have the management and administration of this seigneury and mills, and to any salary for his pains and care, which is to be amply explained in the procuration for that purpose. Accepted. Article 3. As the lands of the said seigneury of Sault Ste. Louis are held in common by all the individuals who make up the Iroquois Indians, including children adopted by the nation, it is agreed upon that each and any one of them shall not hold nor distribute more land than they could clear without putting another person in their place to do the work, be it a farmer, agent, procurer, or other. Accepted. Article 4. It shall not be permitted to any individual holder of land in the said seigneury to sell or carry away any firewood or timber, the whole being reserved for that individual's use, and for the use of each member of the village in general. As it shall not be permitted for anyone to cut maples of sugar bushes of any owner without their expressed consent. Accepted. Article 5. No owner of land and sugar bushes shall sell or cede their right to the same except in the presence of and with the consent of the council assembled for the purpose, because without this formality, any discussion that may arise on this subject will not be heard, and without which the transactions will be considered null and void. Accepted. Article 6. If an owner of cleared land abandons it for three years, it shall be permitted for another to take possession of it and profit from it. Accepted. Article 7. It shall not be permitted for any owner to cut on their land, nor on any part of the domain of said seigneury, sugar bushes, oak wood, nor cedar, seeing as these are expressly conserved for public use of the said seigneury and for the church of the said village. Accepted. Article 8. And to protect the cornfields and other cultivated land, each owner of said fields and lands shall be required to build their part of the enclosure, 
to protect said fields and other cultivated land from animals that could cause damage to them, and if such owners should fail to conform to the present article, it will be possible for the chiefs to have it done at the expense of the owner and to have them legally constrained, not accepted. Article 9. Any person who is convicted of having cut, torn out, or otherwise taken any fences of his neighbors will be brought before the council and condemned to pay one Spanish piastre, half to the conciliator and half to repair the damaged fence. Accepted. Article 10. Every spring, as soon as the snow melts, each owner who has pigs will be required to mark them and if any one of the said pigs, after the public announcement in the village, be found grubbing in cultivated land or gardens, it will be permitted for the offended landowner to kill it on the spot and to leave it at that place so the owner can come to pick it up, if he judges it appropriate so that pig cannot do any more damage to the one who killed it. Accepted. Article 11. Any person convicted of riding another person's horse without their agreement will be required to pay one piastre fine, half of which goes to the informer, and other half to the public fund of the village for the general good of all the members of the nation. Accepted. Article 12. Any person convicted of having milked another person's cow will be required to pay 40 sols for each time they milked the cow, half of which goes to the informer and the other half to the owner of the cow. Accepted. Article 13. No owner of a village house or tenant currently living in the village may shelter or receive any stranger in their home nor give such a person asylum who wants to reside in the village under whatever pretext, unless they have first consulted the village chiefs and council and have received their expressed permission. Accepted. Article 14. It is expressly agreed that no owner of uncleared land may sell, seed, convey, lease, or alienate any part of such land without the consent of the chiefs and council and having received their agreement and expressed consent, and in writing. Accepted. Article 15. If any person is convicted of having taken or seized a boat, canoe, made of wood or bark, for crossing or navigating the river without permission of the owner, they will upon conviction be punished and obliged to pay a fine of forty souls for each offence, half of which goes to the owner of the canoe and the other half to the informer. Accepted. Article 16. Any person who upon testimony of one or several trustworthy people before the council will be convicted of having stolen or taken away vegetables, corn, or other farm or garden products will be condemned to pay a fine of two piastres, of which three pounds or shillings of eight coppers to the informer and nine pounds same shillings to the owner of the land who was thus wronged. Accepted. Article 17. Any person who will graze their horse beyond the fences of the village commons will, upon conviction, be condemned to pay a fine of one piastre that will be delivered to the Mass at the Church of the Paris of Sault St. Louis and used to pray to God for rest for the souls of the departed of the Iroquois nation. Accepted. Article 18. In the future, 
there will be no stables nor barns built in the village of Sault Ste. Louis, and that as of today, and that such buildings that already exist shall in the next four years be dismantled and taken away by their owners and erected beyond the village, behind it in a place deemed appropriate. And if four years expire and the said stables and barns are not moved, they will be destroyed by order of the council and will be a pure loss for the owners who will have no recourse for damages. Accepted. Article 19. And since many vagabonds and vagrants in the village have stolen and taken chains and other hardware of carriages, it is decided that upon conviction before the assembled council, such a convicted person convicted in the future of such an infraction will immediately restore the item to its owner or pay them a sum of money that will be determined by the council, but also a fine of two piastres, of which three pounds go to the informant and nine pounds to the church of the parish of the village or used for other pious works to be determined by council. Accepted. Article 20. It will not be within the power of the Council to raise the penalties and fines related to the present regulations, but can modify these according to circumstances, the regulations being in effect until revoked in Council. Article 21. Whoever does not wish to submit to these present regulations may be punished by the Council as disobedient and expelled from the village according to the will of the members of the Council. Little is known about how the 1801 code was created or how it was perceived in Gahnawage. The archives in which it is held possess very little contextual information. One interesting but unanswerable question is for whom it was created. Was its purpose primarily to make Gahnawage law more legible to outsiders, or was it intended for internal consumption? Many questions remain unanswered, but we can gather quite a lot from the code nonetheless. As with any laws spelled out by a group of people, the 1801 code reveals where Gahnawa Gehronu perceived tensions and dangers to lie. But it is not merely a list of laws. It is also a declaration of legal sovereignty and jurisdiction. The code begins and ends by emphasizing the authority of the chiefs, whose legitimacy resides in the will of all the people. Gahnawa Gehronu clearly had many concerns around land use, use rights, and property. The code contains several prohibitions against stealing boats, horses, agricultural produce, carriage hardware, and milk, or using them without permission. It forbids strangers from being housed in Gahnawage without leave, it specifies when and where livestock may graze, and it bans stables and barns in the village. The laws reveal the continuity of Rudinashuni legal traditions, as well as the integration of certain European legal concepts and practices. Article 1, which lays the foundation for all the rest, states that the seigneury of Sault St. Louis is the property of the Iroquois nation of the said village, thus asserting that the entire territory is owned collectively and that no one person has the power to subdivide, sell, or alienate any part of it without the consent of the chiefs. The 1801 Code recognizes only the chiefs as having authority over the seigneury and only the citizens of the nation as its owners. 
This seems directed at colonial governments that vested ultimate sovereignty over the land in the crown, but it also speaks to individual dissidents, such as Araquande, who tried to claim Garnawage land under colonial norms of ownership. Article 1's insistence on the collective ownership of the nation must have been particularly salient at a time when acquisitive men, backed by powerful colonial interests, were asserting rights over land in ways that threatened to undermine the sovereignty of the nation. This danger, clearly addressed by the chiefs, still disrupts and undermines indigenous sovereignties today, so much so that international legal conventions now recognize the property rights of indigenous peoples as collective rights. Article 1 probably drew on the Goa, in which rights exist insofar as one has a right to enjoy life and the gifts of creation so long as one fulfills the responsibilities to the other beings of this world and the sky world. Historian Susan Hill points out that in the Goa, rights are always collective rather than individual. Nevertheless, Certain articles of the Code explicitly recognize individual rights to use land. The relevant clauses here are Article 3, Limit on the Extent of Land One Person Can Claim, Article 4, Collective Ownership of Trees, Article 5, Council Jurisdiction Over Land Sales, Article 6, Unworked Land Reverts to the Collective, Article 7, Cedar and Oak Reserved for the Collective, Article 9, Fences, Article 10, Pigs, and Article 14, Council Jurisdiction over Leasing. Gahnawage law allowed for individuals to claim and cultivate relatively small lots and sugar bushes, and it protected their fences. Just as individuals were prohibited from hoarding land, more than a person could work, so also were they forbidden to cut more wood than they could use. These limits to acquisitiveness were explicitly for the good of the nation, so that the land wealth could be shared relatively equally. The 1801 Code was rescinded in 1808, though we do not know why. It had been submitted for ratification to Sir John Johnson, Superintendent of Indian Affairs, and perhaps he never approved it. Nor do we know whether it was enforced or even enforceable. But important for this discussion are the context of its creation and the principles embodied in it. Of key importance here are the following. The entire territory is communally owned. The chiefs arbitrate on disputes about land. There is no mention of colonial courts. Land may be individually owned only as long as it is worked. If it is left uncultivated, it becomes available to others. Individuals may own only as much land as they themselves can work. Standing trees may not be owned by individuals, except for maples that are being tapped for sugar. Most other trees, including those on lots owned by individuals, are available to any Gahnawage Hronu who wishes to fell them. Wood cut on Gahnawage territory may not be removed from Gahnawage and may not be sold. It is for the personal use of the person who cuts it. Although the 1801 code was not kept on the books as such, we do not know the circumstances under which it was rescinded. Gahnawage chiefs consistently maintained its principles throughout the 19th century.
The code gives evidence of a number of characteristic land practices in Gahnawage around 1800. For example, livestock such as cows and pigs were widespread, as were horses. Cattle and horses grazed in a fenced common area, whereas much cultivated land was not fenced. Pigs were allowed to run free in winter, but had to be confined during the rest of the year so they would not destroy crops. Gahnawage Hronu had by this time adopted animal husbandry, which provided them with many benefits, but also required some regulation for the good of all. The 1801 Code was not written simply to preserve old laws, but to provide legal guidance in its contemporary context. It shows that chiefs were incorporating some colonial norms and practices, such as recording laws in writing, while also maintaining Rodinashuni values and traditions. One long-standing political value that is not mentioned in the code is the central leadership role played by clan mothers in raising up and deposing chiefs. But this absence could be explained by the fact that the code is not concerned with the mechanics of Gahnawage government. The code also confirms that Gahnawage Hronu found individual land ownership to be acceptable under certain conditions. Rodinashuni always had a kind of individual land tenure practiced by women farmers, Chapter 1, but in a non-capitalist world and non-permanent villages, and thus without intergenerational transfers of accumulated land. Individual tenure was also tempered by the communitarian emphasis of Rodinashuni law. The framers of the code were clearly trying to square traditional practices with the new reality of land scarcity and individual acquisitiveness. Just as Rudanasuni legal orders reject the idea that land and its bounty are commodities, the code also opposed the commodification of nature, and it forbade, in no uncertain terms, the accumulation of land for the purpose of hoarding wealth. Finally, Article 4 prohibited private woodlots and declared the entire territory a communal woodlot. With the exception of Sugarbush, no one could prevent others from logging on wooded land, as long as it was not for commercial reasons. A number of other factors are worth noting regarding the 1801 Code. For example, the chiefs were very concerned about strangers who stayed in the village, and thus made it illegal to house an outsider without permission. Article 13. This may have been a response to Araquande's hotel business, or it may have demonstrated apprehension about white people in general. Perhaps the sort who would have accepted Araquande's invitation to come to Gahnawage in search of a wife and the associated land rights. The chief's recent experience with Delorimier would have made them particularly sensitive to the dangers of giving an outsider citizenship through marriage. Interestingly, Article 8 was not ratified. It would have required everyone who cultivated land anywhere in Gahnawage to help build and maintain the fence around the communal pasture. Given that the article was rejected, it must have generated considerable controversy. The problem was surely not the need for a fence, but rather who should be required to do the work to maintain it. For farmers and gardeners who did not use the common pasture, the expectation that they contribute to maintaining its fence may have seemed unfair. Alternatively, Isabel Bouchard suggests the issue may have simply been the difficulty of legally compelling individuals to do this work. 
In 1804, the chiefs prepared another version of the code and a strategy aimed at getting the recognition of the House of Assembly of Lower Canada. The 1804 version was very similar to the 1801 code, especially in articles related to land use, but it also diverged on certain points. It was more explicit about the consequences, fines, for breaking laws, changed the numbering of some articles, and consolidated others. It omitted two articles from the 1801 Code, Article 9, Prohibition Against Removing the Fences of Others, and Article 19, Fine for Stealing Hardware from Carriages. It also added regulations that imposed fines for disturbing the peace, racing horses, participating in dances on Sundays and holidays, organizing an assembly at the church doors before or after Mass, and refusing to bury animal cadavers. It also authorized the chiefs or missionary to stop an individual from entering the church for Mass or to have an individual removed. These differences notwithstanding, the 1804 version maintained the legal principles of the 1801 Code, especially those related to land and property. Bouchard argues that the chiefs were attempting to establish a coercive authority and that having their code recognized in colonial legislation would give the chiefs access to the coercive authority of the colonial courts for the resolution of internal conflicts. Whatever the motives of the chiefs, their attempts to achieve this kind of recognition from colonial authorities suggest to me that they still saw settler governments as possible allies for building their nationhood and that their new political opponents, men like Araquande and Delorimier, represented such an existential threat to their nationhood that they were willing to take this risk. Nevertheless, there is no evidence that the 1804 document was ever submitted to the Lower Canada House of Assembly for ratification, or that it was ever endorsed by any colonial authority. The 1801 Code, along with the 1804 version of the same, reveals that Gahnawage leaders believed that the rights of individuals to lands emerged from the collective sovereign rights of the nation over its territory. They did not oppose commerce and trade per se, but they believed that buying and selling Gahnawage land and wood was wrong because these belonged to everyone. Under Gahnawage law, an individual's land and wood rights were circumscribed so that all Gahnawage Hronu would have equitable access. In this way, the 1801 code is a marker of continuity with the Rodinashuni past, but it was also a highly innovative attempt to establish jurisdiction and sovereignty through written rules. In the context of growing asymmetrical relations between settler governments and indigenous peoples, the resulting internal political turmoil, Gahnawage's leaders drew on settler practices and ideas in an effort to strengthen their sovereignty and nationhood. Conclusion Due to his military experience, Delorimier was chosen to lead Gahnawage warriors in battle against United States forces in the War of 1812, which probably paid off handsomely for him in the years following the war. Nevertheless, the Indian Department dismissed him from his post as agent in 1821 after it could no longer deny or ignore the many ways in which he abused his position. 
Complaints against him included that he failed to properly collect rents from censitaires, accumulated land, livestock, and houses, showed sexually inappropriate behavior toward Gahnawage women, sold liquor, and skimmed off the top of supplies and presents destined for Gahnawage Hronu. Also in 1821, Gahnawage chiefs decided that all land grants to him would be annulled when he died and that his lands would revert to the community. On his death in 1825, however, they could not enforce the wishes of the community, and his children retained much of his accumulated land. Many Gahnawage Hironu continued to work for the expulsion of the Dolorimier family throughout the 19th century. Some Dolorimiers were forced out, but a number of them became fully integrated into Gahnawage society. Little is known about Thomas Araquande's biological children but his agenda lived on through his adopted son, Jarvis McCumber. Arakwande adopted McCumber, originally from Massachusetts, after he arrived in 1796 as a teenager under unknown circumstances. He married one of Arakwande's daughters and, after serving as land agent for the chiefs, obtained lots totaling 97 acres. In 1817, the chiefs brought their grievance to the court of King's Bench, which ordered him to return these lands. It is notable that by this time, the chiefs were restoring to the courts to enforce their laws, something they had been loath to do a decade earlier. Macumber returned the lands, but repurchased them the same year. Over the course of his life, he married three different Gahnawage women and fathered 28 children. He served as resident interpreter during the 1820s and 1830s and died in 1866. In contrast to Araquande, who played a mostly antagonistic role in relation to the majority of Gahnawage Hironu and their leaders, Macumber may have modeled his strategy on the more ambiguous and arguably successful path taken by Delorimier. Although the acquisitiveness of both Macumber and Delorimier ran counter to Gahnawage laws and values, neither tried to challenge them as directly as Araquande had. Instead, they offered their cross-cultural, linguistic, and military skills to the community, while also accumulating land and maintaining allies. Many Gahnawage Hironu remained skeptical about their true loyalties, as they did not seem to share the community's core values and received much of their income from the colonial government. Court records of the disputes involving Araquande and Delorimier reveal ruptures, conflicts, and power struggles in Gahnawage around the turn of the 19th century. Conflict in any community is normal, but these particular disagreements acquired added significance because of increasingly asymmetrical colonial power dynamics. The chiefs responded to the challenge by crafting the 1801 Code, a legal innovation in defense of the nation that was rooted in Rodinasuni political tradition and the values of the Gayanerech Goa. It was explicitly based on the claim of Gahnawage Hronu and their leaders to exclusive political and legal jurisdiction over their lands. The Code spelled out the rules by which Gahnawage Hronu presumably already abided or new laws they felt were necessary. Putting these previously unwritten laws on paper can be interpreted as an innovative attempt to give them added legitimacy. 
perhaps for outsiders who knew very little about Gahnawage law, but also perhaps for Gahnawage Hronu, who wished to have the kind of clarity and rigidity that written laws provide. Although the code was not ratified by colonial authorities, Gahnawage Hronu continued to assert its principles throughout the 19th century. The following chapters show how they continued to act on their rights, just as the code spelled out. <laughs> 